Welcome to History Notes, a podcast from the Greensboro History Museum, where we are making history by talking history. History Notes is created by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. History Notes intends to provide instructional resources for our area educators and content for all learners both in and out of the classroom. From K-12 to graduate-level students, teachers, administrators, and the overall community, History Notes is for you. Let's examine the individuals, trends, and events that have helped shape who we are today. And don't forget to take notes. It's now time for History Notes. Good day and welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. I'm your host for today, Rodney Dawson. These podcasts are intended to be a resource for our educational community to include our K-12 classrooms and institutions of higher learning and any individuals or groups that will find these sessions useful. As a former classroom teacher and now curator of education for the museum, I thought of ways that we could best add resources for all of our learners. So there's the reason for the podcast. Today we'll speak with individuals largely responsible for paving the way for myself as a teacher and certainly others. These educators fought battles and navigated roadways so that I and others, uh, like myself, wouldn't have to. They found themselves as the first black teachers with uh, multiracial classrooms and the first black faculty at uh, predominantly white institutions. And so we're uh, glad to have them here. And they're here today to talk about their experiences today on History Notes. So we have uh, Ms. Evelina Diggs joining us, Ms. Lena Mural Chapman, and Dr. Odessa Patrick. Mrs. Just Mrs. 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 Yeah, All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> Mrs. Odessa Patrick, right. thank you very much. Uh, Mrs. Diggs is a retired teacher. She's instrumental in the advancement of African-American educators in Guilford County for many years. Uh, the current president of Ever Achievers and uh, the Ever Ever Achievers Retired Teachers Club. And Mrs. Diggs was also elected the first president to lead what would soon become one of the most powerful groups of black educators in the state of North Carolina. Thank you for joining us. Mrs. Muriel Chapman, also a retired educator, educator, but I wouldn't call her retired Mm -hmm. if you saw her business card. She was a pioneer as it relates to black educators finding themselves in integrated classrooms. And while Mrs. Chapman, again, says she's retired, she still remains active by serving as program administrator for Nandel Seminars, and she's the sitting president of the American Association of the University of Women, or AAUW. And uh, Mrs. Patrick is the first African-American faculty at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So thank you for joining us. And you, you come to us through uh, A&T, uh, the University of North Carolina. And then you got your doctorate at UNCG. Master's. Your master's at UNCG. So you're Carolina born and bred. Yes. Thank you all for joining us here on History Notes. So we'll jump right into it. We want to talk about the organizations that you founded and the uh, experiences that you had in your career. Uh, So anyone can jump in. Uh, I'm going to just leave this for the the panel here. Talk to me about uh, what Black Educators Caucus, what it was about, why you uh, found the need to start it, as well as we can touch on Ever Achievers Retired Teachers Club. All right. Well, with the Black Caucus, it started because we saw uh, inadequacies in the school system, Gifford County school system. So it started with a small group, and I felt it should be private. Hmm. When you say small, what do you mean? What kind of numbers? About, I think it was about 11 or 12 of us that met at my house hmm. one night, and we kind of looked at what the discrepancies were uh, 
as far as the children were concerned, the teachers, and the administrators. So we talked. And one thing to me that came out of it, it would be better if we acted one-on-one. Now, what I mean by one-on-one, for instance, the Board of Education, we didn't go to the board. We found one board member that was sympathetic to our cause, and that person served as the go-between as far as the board was concerned. Now, when you say uh, board, uh, we're talking board, what Board year? of Education. We're talking what year? 1975 or? Yeah, this is around 75. So it's late 70s. So we're not talking about the Board of Education that you know it today, where it encompasses all of Guilford County. Was just this just the city of Greensboro? This was Guilford County. Oh, it was Guilford, okay. Mm-hmm, at the time. Okay. And it was born from there. And it was surprising to me about, you know, what we were able to accomplish, and it was very successful. Now, with the uh, Ever Achievers organization, it was founded by one lady named Mrs. Green, and she saw a need for educators to remain active, to still serve with dignity, and it started with four females and one male. Now, Ever Achievers, you're talking the retired educators. And, the reti- and they're retired. And you, you thought it important for them to remain active. Was this for support? Yes, it was for support. And believe it or not, it started 57 years ago. And I am now the eighth president of that organization. Okay. And we... we want to because the organization was started for educators to continue to achieve and it has continued today and when I also look at some of the other things we do we do activities for relaxation and recreation on a monthly basis okay as I was doing my research about the organization I'm, I'm gonna go to you Ms. Chap- Mrs. Chapman um, <clears throat> Uh, one of the phrases that kept coming up uh, that I saw often was uh, you, you described it as serving on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I hear front, front lines as a military man, <laughs> you know, I think of a battlefield. So why did you liken it to serving it on the, on the front lines? What did you mean by that? Because once schools were integrated and we actually became, uh, joined together in a physical facility, there were other struggles that had to come to play. So I call it the front line because the African-American teacher had a difficult time integrating within the school because most of us lost the schools that we were in, where we're used to teaching in, in that environment. So now not only the students were uh, going to a school that was unfamiliar to them, here you had teachers, and many times you were the only African-American teacher in that school, or at least no more than one or two at any school. Mm-hmm. So that was a struggle because we had to hold on to the dignity and your professionalism as being an educator. You had to to make sure that others understood that you were capable, you were knowledgeable, and you were about teaching all students. 
So not only that the students looked at us sometimes as as you know, I'm not I don't know you, I'm unfamiliar with you, but the students actually were not the the biggest issue because the students uh, look at most teachers as that's my teacher. Mm-hmm. But as a professional, you wanted to make sure that you were um, looking out for the African American child who I could say who was visiting or who was new at that school, making sure they were uh, educated. Mm-hmm. properly and that they were not being misunderstood and that um, their learning styles sometimes might be different. But all of those things um, that cause um, some of the concerns from parents, there were concerns from administrators, and there were concerns from other teachers, like, okay, who are you? So just making that bond and, and make it. And, uh, but I do have to say that in most cases, over the years, um, there was a big, uh, a wonderful bond among the teachers. Once you got, uh, they got used to you as a faculty member and realized that you know you wanted the same right. thing they did. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is it's about building relationships. Yes. you know how important it is to build a relationship with, with the student. You know the, the. Uh, the saying, you know, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Exactly. So what was the challenge with building a relationship with the parent? Well, one of the cha- some of the challenges with the parents because they were unfamiliar. And many of them, you know, they're, you know we went to school where those parents have not ever had to experience an African-American teacher for their child. You know, these are their babies. And people are very careful about what, you know, who is teaching their child. Uh, so there are things that uh, that I ran into that uh, was challenging until they really learned that I wanted the same thing and that I, too, was, an, as, as a good educator and uh, I was committed to making sure that their child got the best education possible. Okay. I'm going to um, pose a question to you, uh, Mrs. Diggs, then I'm going to come to you. Uh, Mrs. Patrick, uh, so I can get your perspective from higher learning, where you don't have all those entities involved, or or you may be able to tell me where I'm wrong. But, uh, Mrs. Diggs, you dealt with administration. uh, Yeah, yes. Quite often. You had a a, a a stronger tie. Right. Yeah. So how did you forge that relationship and and talk to us a little bit about the challenges you experienced and then the the strengths, where, where you made some headway? Well... I'm a, I am the type of person to always try to find ways to overcome obstacles. So, in the school system, what I did, I made sure I knew about what was coming down the pike, like conferences, workshops, and things of that nature that were related to my teaching. I taught math and science. So I made sure I developed a relationship with the administrator of those classes that I taught. So people got to know me because I was always trying to make myself known. Okay, now tell me how that may have hurt you. It could have hurt me, but I think it was my personality. Okay. And they knew that I was serious about why I wanted to come so I could get my foot, I would say, in the door, especially in administration. And so, and I could see that evolving, working through the administrator of my classes, and then naturally he is going to tell others about me, 
And it went that way. Even when the superintendent came, we, if we had a new superintendent, I made sure that I, I would go make an appointment and introduce myself, you- especially after the formation of the Black Educators Caucus. Would you recommend or suggest that uh, educators today do that very same thing? I would recommend that you do that. It's, it's important that people know you so that when opportunities come, people will say, ah, I know Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. And they, it's, 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 it was, it's interesting now that I look back as to what happened and how it happened, and I was received with openness all the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Mrs. Patrick, they <clears throat> made headway. They pioneered K-12, you know, the, the pre-K to 18-year-olds. You got them when they thought they were grown. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So you're at, uh, at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. That's uh, right. We call it UNCG. That's um, right. When did, when, when did it go from women's college to UNCG? About 1962. 62? So I started in 1958. Okay. So this was before the public schools integrated. That's right. It was woman's college at Mm -hmm. that time. And uh, my major professor at A&T, North Carolina A&T, called me and said they were looking for somebody to uh, act as director for preparing laboratory materials at Women's College. Um, the, the introductory course was comprised of several lab. You have lectures, a lecturer, but then you have uh, the students are divided up into laboratory sections. So that was, my, that was my job, to see that the labs were prepared, that materials were ordered, this kind of thing. But based on my relationship or my coming in, I was told by several of the members that they were not ready, but uh, the chairman of the department thought that I was ready. Mm. So as an African-American, that was, that was what the readiness wow. was about. But the chairman of the department thought that I was ready, so I was able to stay. And uh, this was, I was involved in the laboratory part of the introductory biology course. And uh, when I received my master's, I was promoted, of course, and uh, I taught laboratory sections in biology. I lectured sometimes and also in physiology and anatomy. But at the same time, you do develop, as Mrs. Uh, Diggs stated, you, you learn people, they learn about you and I eventually, you hope you're accepted, and uh, so I, I remained in that position for a long time, and uh, it's, it's a matter of developing relationships with people and, and letting them know that you know what you're doing next. Was that stressful? Well, in a way, no. I, even, even from the very beginning, I just, I felt like I was somebody... I guess. (laughs) So you had self-confidence and self-esteem. Yes, right. I I knew what I was doing. I Mm -hmm. I had an education, just as they did. Mm -hmm. So uh, it never, I I never felt stressed. Uh, I'll have to admit that some, it's sometimes there were students who had never known 
and a minority teacher, and uh, some of them, maybe they changed, maybe they didn't, but, but I was accepted and respected by my students. And uh, so I, I never really felt out of place. Okay. You mentioned something that is going to mm-hmm. maybe uh, kind of throw a curveball at you. You said that you had already accepted the job, you were working in that capacity, then you decided to go back and get your master's. That's right. So I'm assuming you still had the job. That's right. So you you got a job and you're juggling school. Did we have family too? Yes. So we had family too, which leads me to how do you do this? What does it look like? The, the dynamics of it when you're doing all this, you're trying, you're being a pioneer, but you got a husband and kids to go home to. And that's why I was asking about the stress factor. Tell me what what a day's like when you're pioneering in this field. Well, you got to think. You have to plan. You have to plan the meals. And in our cases, we, we all had husbands. And my husband was wonderful. And if, if, I, if he did the breakfast, then I knew I had to do the dinner. Or we would do it vice versa. Because working with educators, caucus at that time, that required a lot of night secret meetings maybe, at a restaurant after the restaurant closed and I would invite the superintendent to come and meet with us so that we could just talk openly Mm. and the outside community didn't know about it as to what we were doing. For instance, like, we, um, to get back to the question you asked, my husband knew if if I would be home at 10 that night or 11. So we had to plan for the children. We had to make sure that someone was at school to pick them up if they had um, after-school activities. So, yes, it was very stressful. And there were sometimes... Um, um, meetings that conflicted with one another because my husband was a professional too and but it, it for some reason it worked and we were able to maintain our marriage and raise the children and in our cases both of us went back to get our masters okay. so we had to juggle that so I went at night. He went in the summertime. It, it, it was stressful. But we knew, and he knew what I was doing, and he understood, and then he could see the results of what I was doing, and that made the difference. And see, in my case, it's a little different. I was not married. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we uh, first mm-hmm. started the caucus, I got married recently afterward, and I had no children until a couple of years later. I had a son. But I do remember the... Uh, I spent um, many hours with the children at the school, much more than I was spending with my son. Right. Uh, because uh, at a school where you were, there were only one or two African-American educators, you felt sort of committed to the African-American children. So I started a club 
called, uh, at the time was called Soul Train, all African-American club. And the reason I did that is because mm-hmm. in order to be a member of an of some of the clubs at the school, you had to know someone already in. So 90% of the students were not a part of anything when I first got to that school, African-American children. So I wanted to start an organization that uh, African-American children would, could join. You are listening to History Notes, a production of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To discover and learn more about the discussion and our exhibits, visit the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro, or visit greensborohistory.org. That's greensborohistory.org. Now let's get back to History Notes. Let me ask you this. Was that an expectation? That's part one. And part two, how did you keep the perception from being that you were singling out the African-American students? Well, it was not an expectation. Uh, I was just determined because I, what I saw were African-American children in need to belong and to grow and to make better grades and to, and to uh, have the, a positive eye looking at them. So we did lots of things, and, um, and they all... I said most of them felt that they knew they could come to me or we could meet, and any concerns that they may have, I just want to make sure that they had a positive way of sharing that, that, that concern and how do we come up with a positive answer. So I had to make them feel proud. I had to know their parents. I constantly stayed in contact with their, their parents and whether they needed tutoring, whether we had to set up a community, a media center in the community to get them extra tutoring help, whatever those needs were. If I had to load my car and take them to the doctor at the time mm-hmm. to get ready for whatever team. Uh, but that's so a lot of time was extra time was spent because when there's so few of you, somebody had to be there to look out for those, for those children that um, were a little bit, you know, was new to the school. Alright. Now how did you balance it? You know, where you, you take care of the, uh, the other children in your classroom as well so that they don't feel that you're giving preferential treatment or extra attention or special attention to, to the African-American students. Well, um, in the classroom, uh, this is why you do things after school or, you know, uh, extra curricular activities after mm-hmm. school. But in that classroom, you know, when you look at your class, you know, all children are your children. You don't right. see, you know, you just they just right. you just know them by by their name and and everything is just just there and equal, and but you still have uh, students who needed some extra help. So this is when you sort of worked afterwards. What we did eventually, uh, I changed the name of that group to an organization that was open to everybody because I too had to grow in that area. So it changed it to, we'll say, at the time was sad, was sad, uh, sad students against drunk driving. So that was open to all students. So because a lot of students would come, because I was their teacher, and say, I want to be a part of this. So we saw some other needs, and so we made, I made some adjustments through the years as well. All right. And I imagine, uh, did you have the same uh, experience, or similar experiences with the institutions of higher learning and uh, the, the African-American students? Did you come across very many? No, at that time, well, when I started in 1958, there were just a handful. They, uh, you, Women's College admitted two black students in 1956, two. And then the next year they admitted a few more. So, uh, yes, I did come in contact with these students. 
and uh, they would come to me and talk about their problems and what have you. And and in the eventually white students too. So mm-hmm. uh, I had to make the adjustment to to all the students, and you know they were older, of mm-hmm. course, which is different from being in elementary school or uh, uh, secondary school. All right, so. and I believe uh, two of those students uh, are represented in an exhibit we have in the museum, mm-hmm. uh, two of the ones that you're talking about. Oh. Um, uh, but talk to our listeners, and I'm going to throw this to everyone, our listeners about the importance of recognizing the achievements of the students. Were, were there obstacles to overcome in doing this? or if, How did you do that? Well, that was one reason we organized the Black Educators Caucus. That was one item also that our African-American students were not included as far as um, being recognized for excellence in education. They were not uh, uh, on honor roll. And this is when we integrated. And we knew our students were smart. And so we decided that we would do it ourselves recognize the students. And here again, it was important that I have this relationship with the superintendent. So when I went to him to let him know what we wanted to do to get approval, to to uh, recognize the African-American students, they gave it to me. He attended the first... Yes, he did. Her. It was was amazing. Um, What was the superintendent? What was his name at that time? Do you remember? No. Okay. (laughs) I was hoping you did because I did. But it had come to me. Okay, I did see the photograph where he was. He was in attendance, and I looked. It was at Moore Gymnasium. Yes. Okay. At A and T. North Carolina A and T. Aggie prior to those. That's. Um, But we know the first year we did the achievement. uh, There were forty-four schools in Gifford County approximately during that time. That's right. And we only got. We had to contact the school and try to get the members to get that list to us. It was very difficult to it get the difficult. list of the students who qualified. So uh, what happened mm-hmm. is that the first year we only had 23 schools to respond. Some would not for whatever their reason. But once uh, the uh, Evelina and the board went to the superintendent, that was and the parents got behind it. That was the last year we did um, that. We only got twenty three. From then on, we had a hundred percent of the schools participating, and didn't have space hardly yeah. in the museum. But going back to the question of a relationship mm-hmm. and uh, overcoming acceptance from the parents, I think it. In my case, it was that I made sure that the parents knew what I was doing, I would invite them to come to my classroom if they wanted to, to observe. I, um, I, w- I had an open door for the parents who were at home, who didn't have anything to do, to come over and volunteer. So if they were coming to see how I taught or whatever was on their mind, I made sure when they walked in the door, that I would give them something to do. Did they take you up on it? Yes. I always had papers to check, to, to grade, and I had them ready. Oh, I'm so glad you're here today. Would you help me with this? And that was the approach. And or 
would you help me get ready for my science experiment? Would you, you know, okay. do things like that? They became involved in my classroom, so much so that I had teachers coming from other systems to see what I was doing that was different from other teachers. I did not have that closed-door approach. Also, I've made it known when we, at the beginning of the year, that I would be able to call them. And if a parent said it was okay, then I wanted to know what time. What time are you at home? Or is it okay if I call you at work if I have a problem with your child? They knew I meant business. And guess what? I always had parents wanting to be have their children in my room because they knew they would be involved. They knew what I was doing. Okay. And it worked. Um, I, I believe it did. Mm-hmm. I believe it did. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, uh, Mrs. Patrick, uh, how did it make you feel, and I'm going somewhere with this question, but how did it make you feel to be the first uh, black faculty at UNCG? Mm-hmm. Well, at that time, it didn't. It was. It was a, a surprise, really. <laughs> and but, other than that, um, after so long, the people welcomed me, and and so we learned to work together. So, uh, eventually, they hired two or three more black faculty. African American. How soon after? Are we talking years? Or? Yes. Okay. So I imagine if you're the first. Yes. That some churches in Greensboro is going to ask you to come speak. Oh. There's some uh, civic organizations that's going to ask you to come speak. Some people that want to sit down and eat with you. Did you deal with a lot of that, a lot of demands on your time? No, I didn't because I'm I'm afraid many people didn't even know that, that oh. this had occurred. I, my name was never in the paper, newspaper or anything until this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I was just... Uh, Member of the flock. Now, yeah. now in, in full disclosure, my wife actually took her class. Wow. My wife took your class in 1993, 94, something like that. Okay. And um, you know what she told me? <laughs> when I first asked her, I said, do you know um, Professor or Mrs. Patrick? She said, no, no. I said, uh, I said your first name. Hmm. And she said, no, I don't remember. And then I saw her later that night, and I said, her last name is Patrick. She said, Mrs. Patrick, Professor Patrick, she was tough. I didn't think she liked me. Oh, my God. So, so it tells me, she said you were, uh, wow. you were strict. You, you demanded a lot from your students. Why was that important to you? Well, that's what school is about. Not so much a demand, but that they are interested in getting what they can out of the course. And that it might, the, the thing about taking classes our education classes is that I think one class sort of carries over into whatever you learn in one situation can carry over into something else. And this is, this is how education goes. You learn by including what you learned last year in what maybe a question comes up about something that you learned in a class last year. So uh, I was interested in them knowing what they needed to know as they moved along in their classes and getting their degrees and what have you. Did you find that minority students, uh, uh, what's the word, gravitated to you? 
Yes, okay. yes, they did. And, and I did everything I could for them. But at the same time, there were other students right. who, who were. I met a young man, uh, one of my students, my husband was in the hospital in what, 2014, and uh, one, of the, one of the doctors who came to talk to me about cancer treatment, he said, I was in your class in, mm-hmm. <laughs> back when you were. He was in uh, a student at UNCG, and he had gone on to become a, a, what, an oncologist. Okay. So, yeah. And I, I received a card from one of my students. I meant to bring it. Uh, oh, I guess it was the same year that I retired in 96 sometime. But anyway, I received a card from her, and she was telling me how much she had learned and that uh, she, well, she came to see me because she wasn't doing well. And we talked, and, and so I helped her uh, individually to find out what her reasons were. Sometimes students would come, and they would bring their lab manual. They wanted help, but they hadn't done a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess and they, they got would've... the same problem today. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. so, but she did send me a card saying how much she appreciated what I had done for her. She did get her degree. She was an older student. Right. I didn't te- teach quite as long as you all, but one thing I do enjoy is when I'm in the mall or out and one of my students, former students, runs up to me and i uh, like, what are you doing here? Like, I have to shop too, but, you know, it's a special feeling <laughs> to see them outside of the classroom. And you all are still involved in the schools today, and you're familiar with uh, the procedures, the practices, and the methods. Um, so what goals, you know, and that's a teacher term. Yes. What goals or strengths have you seen? And where is there room for growth? Yeah, I'm talking about in today's classroom. That's to anyone. Well, what I see is, uh, and going back into the classroom, either doing interim or subs, or just working or tutoring or working with uh, some of the teachers and the students, um, you know, students, I know one thing, most students are still students. They're still the same. And you just want to stay, uh, hold on to that heart of that teacher, uh, and, and, and they're going to grow. But I think what's happening today's time, what I see, is uh, some of the strategies that were used when I started teaching. Um, I like like to see them, and I know they worked then, and I believe they will work now, but because we um, are tied to... Uh, a certain sta- a certain pattern. Mm-hmm. See, you want to have the same standards, and you want to raise the level of expectations to students. But teachers need more flexibility on how that's done. No. And I, I see it's so uh, it's the the, uh, the process has is so tight at this point where teachers don't have the flexibility to teach children how they should learn. See, a child should never have to learn the way a teacher teaches. Um, the teacher should have to teach the way a child learns. So you don't have the opportunity to take each of those individual children and really teach them the way they learn. So, and then to get them to grow where they on, on the path to success. And if I had to change anything about today, I would bring some of those strategies back where we um, knew how knew the child well enough to know that child, what kind of help that child needed, and how to get that child where he or she needs to go. I hear the, the moving from a, a teacher-centered approach to a more of a student-centered approach, and now a lot of people saying the learning, learning approach, learning center. Uh-huh. 
Uh, a friend of mine, and we'll close out in a few moments here, but a friend of mine, he's very politically involved in, involved in High Point, and he uh, held a fundraiser at his home. And uh, the governor was in, invited, but because of the hurricane, he couldn't attend. Uh, but it was still a, a success. And so the governor actually reached out to him, and he's meeting with the governor in the next two weeks He's uh, to talk. So he reached out to me and some of my friends uh, from an educator standpoint, and we put together a little packet for him to take. Because the question that he asked me was, um, if you're in front of the governor and money is not the object, uh, money, money is not uh, going to prohibit you, uh-huh. um, what would you ask him as a teacher? So I'm going to put that to you, Mrs. Diggs. If you're sitting in front of the governor and today's educational state, what would you ask him? What would you tell him that you needed? I... Oh, wow. What I would do, I was listening to Lena talking about how children learn, but I would want money for parents because I, what I've seen during my time when I was uh, doing tutoring in the classroom since I retired, I see a need for the parents to have access to whatever materials or things that they need to help them understand how their child learns. And that's what the problem is. The parents have no idea. The the regular parents, not necessarily students of parents who are professionals. Teachers would always, parents would always ask me when I was tutoring, I don't know what to do. I can't teach. I can't help my child do homework. And, you know, that's, that's sad. But if there was something put in place where parents could participate to learn how their child is learning and the needs, I feel like that would help the teachers so much more than now. Because now, your parents are younger. Some parents are now teenagers, really. Mm -hmm. And they have children in school, and they don't know what to do. I agree with you. Uh, I think it would help prioritize learning. Yes. Um, If we had plenty of time, I'd uh, that's, I'm talking about my own dissertation that's now. Right. But, but, uh, but I'm telling this true. It is the true. The parents don't know. Right. So uh, to wrap things up, we have the uh, Black Caucus, and then we have the Ever Achievers Retired Teachers Club, mm-hmm. uh, which is still ongoing today, and you meet uh, at the uh, Hayes-Taylor YMCA. Uh, if someone wanted to join your organization, uh, what could they do? How could they get the information? Oh, they could contact any person and that's one thing I try to stress. Each one reach one to bring them in to join. And there is a fee, of course, that we pay because, you know, in the beginning I said we have time for relaxation and fun, so money is needed. So we have a small budget. We always have a meal once a month at the Golden Corral to meet and let meeting it's purely for fun, enjoyment, playing pinochle and bingo and fellowshipping, just 
Could but, but in the meantime, I also want people to know that our first meeting is about achieving something. Right. We don't ever meet just to, to meet. We have a program monthly centered around something that affects a child in the community even now. For instance, at the Y uh, in December, we found out that there was a need because there were, I forgot, about eight or ten students mm -hmm. who didn't have, were not going to be able to have things for Christmas. And I think in five minutes, I think maybe eight, we raised almost, what, $1,000. I mean, look, we were 600 when we got that much, and then when another one found out, it went to 800 I mean, the wife was excited. So we provided their Christmas, things like that. Okay. And we have a, um, the reason you have the relationship with the museum is because you approached them about um, your, yes. your history and uh, the museum displayed a, an exhibit mm -hmm. um, uh, devoted to the Ever Achievers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's down now, but it was up for what, uh, how long, a year? Almost six months. Almost six months, okay. We planned it for one month. One month. And then... They kept it for six months. So, so our director definitely saw a need for that. and then it's Because it brought in so many uh, people. Right, mm -hmm. and it, it, as well it should. And it's progressed to now the museum, the uh, education department has uh, educational trunks available for mm -hmm. teachers and uh, anyone that's teaching a group. You mm -hmm. can uh, check these trunks out. Um, they are it's a $10 uh, refundable deposit, so mm -hmm. when you bring the trunk back, you get the deposit back, but the trunk consists of, we may have one, we have one, um, uh, civil rights. And so if you're teaching a lesson on civil rights, this trunk has items that are related to civil rights, and teachers can use it to supplement or build a lesson plan around. And uh, what's exciting is that now we're going to be, uh, uh, we're developing and close to finish, finishing a trunk entirely devoted to the Ever Achievers uh, Retired Teachers Club. So uh, briefly, some of the artifacts that we'll see in that can be books that you use mm -hmm. to teach. Uh, one book well over 100 years old. Yes. Uh, the lamp that you use to yes. teach. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so we're to, excited to, about that. That uh, I use for doing homework. For doing homework. And then the, uh, uh, what do we call them? You know, we got, some, we got whiteboards now, but you had the chalkboard, the handheld uh, chalkboard that you could write on. So uh, we're definitely excited um, to uh, unveil that, and we're going to have a ceremony in, in February. And, um, looking forward to seeing each of you there. Um, but for right now, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on this podcast, uh, Miss Ev Mrs. Evelina Diggs, mm -hmm. Mrs. Chapman, and Mrs. Patrick. It was an honor to have you here, and I appreciate you taking the time to do so. Uh, so we certainly uh, thank you for joining us here on History Notes. Uh, you can... Uh, join us at any time by going to our website at www.greensborohistory.org and hit the tab where it says Discover and Learn in the top right, and we'll make this podcast available. You can see, see, hear it at your convenience. Uh, so thank you again for your time here on History Notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to this podcast at your convenience by continuing to log on to www.greensborohistory.org under the tab Discover and Learn and listen to this and many other podcasts. Thank you to our friends here at Press Play Studios for your hard work and thank you for listening to History Notes. 
Thank you for listening to History Notes, a podcast from the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. The Education Department offers several resources for learners both in and out of the classroom. Learn more at greensborohistory.org. Then select the Discover and Learn tab at the top of the homepage. You may schedule a tour, a field trip, or reserve an education trunk for your next lesson. Daily visitors can stop by the museum at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro. Admission is free. You've been listening to History Notes, where we are making history by talking history. Tune in next month for a new topic, new discussion, and new insight. This has been History Notes.